stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. The case of D.B. Cooper for 50 years has been a source of all kinds of uh, fascination, right? The combination of the mystery and the audacity. It was 50 years ago today that that happened. November 24th, 1971 was also a Wednesday. It was also the eve of the U.S. Thanksgiving. D.A., D.B., Dan Cooper. There were various uh, names associated with this individual. I think it was Dan Cooper that he registered himself as, but D.B. Cooper emerged somewhere along the way, and that's the name that stuck. And maybe just the initials add to the mystery of it all. Of course, Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper was not his real name. But will we ever know his real name? Who hijacked that plane that night? And what happened to him? Parachuted out of that plane with $200,000. Some of that money was found. But D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, never was found. Maybe he died. Maybe he got away with that. You know, there have been a lot of hijackings over the years. Some have referred to that period as the golden age of hijacking. A lot of political hijackings. But this one, the skyjacking has really stood out in terms of uh, fascination. Well, certainly something our next guest is uh, fascinated with, has done extensive research on the mystery. Eric Eulis is a D.B. Cooper researcher. You can find him at uh, his website. It's Eric Eulis, U-L-I-S dot com. Eric, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I'll tell you, I mean, the case fascinates me. I've read a lot about it over the years. Obviously, it, it fascinates and, and interests you. What do you think it is, or how do you explain why it has such a lasting and enduring fascination? I think it's a couple of things that uh, that lead to that. Uh, first of all, it's the only unsolved skyjacking in United States history. I think that's a big part of it. So there is this enigma that surrounds D.B. Cooper. You know, we know it's real. It's not like Bigfoot or something like that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is uh, just the way he carried himself and presented himself. There was a very James Bond-esque kind of feel to it all. You dovetail all of that into that era. You know, the late, the, the, rather the early 70s and some of the tumult that was uh, taking place in the United States. And I just think it was the perfect formula, the perfect recipe for, uh, you know, sort of this anti-hero to take hold. And indeed, 50 years later, the guy still is uh, very much an anti-hero in the minds of many Americans and indeed uh, others worldwide. Yeah. You wrote a report. You called it uh, Sky Ghost. I like that term because <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what he was, right? He just he, he was there and then he vanished, it feels like. That's exactly right. Uh, the, in reality, there's very little that we officially know about the guy. Don't have any idea, you know, what his name was. Don't have any idea where he came from, how he got to the airport, whether he lived or died. We don't know what happened to the great majority of the money. There's an awful lot we don't know about him. Uh, but the one thing we do know is it's real. We do know that the guy was real, and this really did occur 50 years ago today. Is is any of that still knowable? The unanswered questions, can we still answer them, you know, 50 years later? I think there's actually quite a bit that we can learn about the guy now that we that we couldn't in 1971, and that's by and large due to the passage of time in and of itself. That that tells us some stuff, but also advances in science and technology, things of that nature. 
So uh, the other thing is, you know, the FBI file through the Freedom of Information Act started becoming available to the public in 2016. Now, they're heavily redacted, and most of the files are of little value, but there are a few gems in there. So that gives a lot of us, myself included, the opportunity to actually read the real files going back to the night of the skyjacking moving forward and seeing how the uh, investigation was carried out and, and, and learning uh, what, you know, what the investigators themselves, what the FBI themselves was learning as this, as this case progressed. Now, one of the intriguing clues, obviously, in trying to ascertain what happened was the money that was found. I think it was only a few thousand dollars out of the 200000 uh, in ransom. Uh, but it was, it was buried and ended up, I think, washing ashore eventually. Where, where was the, the money found, and what did that discovery tell us about this case? Uh, there was $6,000 that was found uh, essentially eight years after the skyjacking took place. Three individual packets of $20 bills, all stacked upon each other, buried just beneath the sand, about 50 feet from the water's edge at about eight feet above the level of the Columbia River. It was found at a place called Tina Bar, which is on the Columbia River, right there in the Vancouver, Washington, Portland, Oregon area. Uh, initially, it confounded the authorities because where the money was found was nowhere near the FBI search area, about 20 miles as the crow flies from the FBI search area, plus upstream, <laughs> upstream, which is very problematic. Uh, in later years, with the advances in science and technology, as I referenced before, there's some things we've learned about the money and have discovered, uh, and I think all of that indicates uh, quite a bit. I think it tells us that D.B. Cooper survived is the first thing and that he got away with it. Uh, but having said that, um, you know, there is, it, it hasn't thus far led us to actually identify, led us really to identifying who the guy actually was. So was that money that inadvertently got away from him? Or was there anything deliberate in maybe what he was trying to do with all of it? Well, it's a complicated and detailed story, but I think the evidence is clear that <clears throat> when the money was delivered to D.B. Cooper in Seattle, um, it was delivered in a big, white, open bank, pa- uh, bank bag, a canvas bank bag. Didn't have a zipper on it, handle snaps, anything of that nature at all, even though Cooper had requested that it be delivered in a knapsack. And Cooper, of course, immediately recognized there was a problem <clears throat> with, a, with the open-top bank bag. If it jumps out like that, it's, it's going to go all over the place. So, in effect, Cooper had to uh, come up with a solution I believe part of the solution is he took some of the money out of the bag because it was very full and he stashed it on another part of his person. And then he ultimately ended up cannibalizing one of the parachutes he had delivered to to tie up that that bank bag to his person. Uh, So what I believe is uh, that he ended up landing uh, very near where the money was found. He had to temporarily bury the money. And that's sort of obvious to me. He couldn't very well walk in the downtown Vancouver, uh, Washington with a 20-pound bag of cash. Uh, but I believe he just simply dug a hole on the beach there where the money was found through that big white canvas bank bag in the hole full of money and those loose excess packets of 20s that he removed to lighten the load in the bag. They also went in the hole. It's obvious to me at some point, somewhere down the road, he retrieved all of it, presumably at night, and there were just three packets that were uh, unbeknownst to him left behind and, uh, behind, and ultimately those were the three packets that were found in 1980 by a young eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram. 
Now, certainly, if he did survive that 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 escape, even just the audacity to attempt that escape, it certainly speaks to a certain level of expertise, training uh, in in that field, and and that was a focus, you know, right from the get go, obviously, in trying to figure out who this was. So, what does that tell us then about whoever the suspect might be? I think that you're right about that. There's a lot that we can learn about who D.B. Cooper was and where he came from by looking at a lot of what transpired uh, on that night. Uh, I think the evidence clearly points to somebody that was involved in the aerospace sector, probably related to Boeing in some manner. I don't think he actually worked at Boeing. I think it's likely that he worked at a company like Pratt & Whitney, which built the aircraft engines for Boeing and was headquartered in uh, Connecticut. Uh, but I think he also knew skydiving. He was familiar with skydiving. Uh, probably had a pink slip in hand, and probably uh, you know obviously it was it was that that period of time was a, there was literally a depression in the aerospace sector uh, in the United States. In fact, Boeing itself had laid off fifty thousand people uh, in the second half of nineteen seventy one. So and that's related to the cancellation of the SST supersonic transport. So I think uh, the, the the evidence clearly points to to Again, somebody probably 45 years of age, pink slip in hand, you know, comfortable with aviation, comfortable with skydiving, and for whatever reason he decided this was his ticket out. I don't consider him a career criminal. I actually think this was a one-off event and and uh, probably somewhat surprised himself when he got away with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's absolutely clear that the guy survived. And, indeed, the guy could still be alive today. It's entirely possible uh, he would be about 95 years of age. And while that seems kind of remarkable to consider, uh, one of the premier highest-profile FBI suspects, the guy who became a suspect within five days of the skyjacking, uh, who was really never eliminated by the FBI, even had his DNA tested, uh, just passed away last January at the age of 94. So it is entirely possible that the real D.B. Cooper is still alive today. But the real D.B. Cooper have written letters. There were, I think, six taunting kind of letters, maybe had some kind of codes in some of them that were sent to various uh, media outlets, including a paper in uh, Vancouver, B.C., uh, somebody claiming that he was D.B. Cooper and that he was at the Grey Cup game in Vancouver that year. But are yeah. any of them legit, in your view? No, I think they're all clearly hoaxes. Again, D.B. Cooper got away because he didn't brag about it. Didn't brag about it, didn't talk about it, didn't taunt. You know, he just uh, kind of flew under the radar, laid low. And uh, so, you know, the, the whole notion of him writing letters and taunting the authorities and, and, and the inability to provide any kind of evidence uh, that, that the person writing the letters, and, and there appear to be multiple people as well, uh, I think it's pretty indicative of uh, of people that, for whatever reason, just felt like, you know, affecting a hoax and, and making matters that much more complicated. I mean, if indeed this was, you know, both a successful and a lucrative crime, we didn't really see any copycats. And, and maybe there was just too much involved in pulling this off. Maybe some things changed, you know, in terms of uh, airline security after after this. But I don't know. Why, why do you think there weren't copycats? There actually were. There actually were mm-hmm. copycats. The Richard Floyd McCoy, probably the most famous, uh, just uh, in April of 1972, so a few months later, actually did a remarkably similar jump and got away with $500,000 and survived. Uh, his problem is he bragged about it. <laughs> and one day the authorities knocked on his door, and uh, lo and behold, he had $500,000 sitting in his closet. That's literally what happened. <laughs> There was a gentleman named Heedy as well, and there have been some other uh, skyjackers as well. Uh, it is notable that every single one of these copycat skyjackers actually survived. So 
Uh, you know, there's been some discussion, did T.B. Cooper survive or not? Uh, I think that's one, that's one thing that I point to regularly that uh, as, as, a, as a measure of evidence that uh, he absolutely survived this thing. Well, there you go. I guess the lesson is getting caught does not lend to, uh, to, to infamy, does it? That's right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, and look, you, you know, the FBI had their suspects. There are different researchers and authors who have put different names forward. Are there any that, that you point toward? Have you seen a convincing argument for somebody specific? I would say the person that's the most intriguing to me is that gentleman that I just referenced who passed away in January, a gentleman named Sheridan Peterson. Um, he checks a lot of the boxes. However, there's one very big box that he doesn't check, and that is that Sheridan Peterson was never a smoker at any point in his life. Hmm. And D.B. Cooper appeared to have been a regular smoker. So that's a problem. So I would say, to answer your question directly, that in all likelihood, the real D.B. Cooper is somebody who is completely unknown. He's complete unknown to law enforcement, somebody who has literally flown under the radar for the last 50 years. And I would hazard a guess that he probably came, again, from the northeastern part of the United States. I would look specifically at Connecticut and that, that Pratt and Whitney relationship. Uh, and I'm not just saying that. I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of evidence and, and a lot of detail that kind of points in that direction. One notable Canadian connection here is uh, there actually was an attempted skyjacking, an extortion that took place uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, 11 days before the D.B. Cooper skyjacking oh. that uh, ultimately was unsuccessful. An Air Canada flight from Vancouver to Toronto. Uh, and again, was ultimately uh, unsuccessful. That's the first time I'm aware of anybody actually trying to extort money mm-hmm. from an airline or an insurance company, if you will. I suspect that that may actually have served as a measure of motivation for D.B. Cooper. That that skyjacking may well have given D.B. Cooper the idea to pull off the skyjacking 11 days later. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. Much more is mentioned at your website. It's Eric Ulis, U-L-I-S dot com. Eric, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. You bet. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, D.B. Cooper researcher Eric Ulis, uh, and he spent a lot of time investigating this. A lot he's written about it. Again, com is his website uh, if you want to read more about it. And, yeah, it is that, that enduring mystery. Who did this? You know, was it someone who just came up with the idea, did it, pulled it off, got away with it, and that was that? never spoke about it, never did it again, just went on with his life and all these years watching all of this speculation and fascination of books and TV shows and just kept that to himself. I mean, it is quite remarkable. And yeah, as, as Eric said, I mean, it, it almost turns him into an antihero. And I think at some level, there's kind of that admiration maybe people have, just the audacity of it and to pull that off. So there are a lot of fascinating aspects of the case, obviously, and just... The mere fact that it's a mystery and all of this time, all of this investigation, all the resources, all of the other researchers and teams that have looked into this. And maybe there is still somebody out there, 95 years old, sitting back and kind of smirking at it all. 50 years ago today, I pulled it off and they never figured it out. We'll take a time out here. Our number 403-974-8255. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.